The passage we're going to be looking at is found in John chapter 6, and I'll be reading in that passage in just a moment. Before I do, I, I, want, to, I want to describe what we're going to talk about. There's an old book by Andrew Murray called With Christ in the School of Prayer, and it's a great book. It's a classic from the 19th century. Tonight I want to talk about With Christ in the School of Faith and how Jesus builds faith inside us. When I first became a Christian, I remember uh, in the middle of my senior year, I'd only been a Christian about three months, and I found myself in a place where, uh, I can't tell all these stories, but I just found myself in a place in the middle of my senior year where I was outside of my home, I had been um, expelled um, in relationship to my faith, but also just through some childish mistakes I made, and, and I was literally alone for several weeks, and um, my best friend whose parents were Christians, he was not, took me in, and, and I remember that first evening on my own, uh, looking at the ceiling and really finding myself in a place where, Lord, I need you, and if you don't take care of me, I'm not going to survive this, and he took care of me. I survived it. I remember when I transferred from the University of Texas to Blue Mountain College, and I, I didn't have a job for that summer in between my freshman and sophomore years. I, I didn't know anybody in this part of the country. I drove into Memphis, Tennessee on the recommendation of a friend. I met somebody who was a friend of a friend. Didn't know them, but just met this person. And they took me to see a student pastor and... Um, at a church called Bellevue Baptist Church. I'd never heard of it before. I'd never even knew what a Bellevue was. And, um, and the student pastor happened to be from Texas, and I was born in Texas, and he immediately decided I was a good guy because of that. And he said, well, hold on, Don. And he, he, uh, he said, I'm going to pray with you about a job and a place to stay, but hold on. He said, let me make a phone call. And he turns around and make a phone call, and in one phone call, I had a job for the summer and a place to stay. And I had simply trusted the Lord and being obedient to what he had said to do at that point. But, you know, when you're 19 years old, that seems like the end of the world kind of a step to take. And I remember as uh, I wrestled with the decision to ask Gail to marry me, I, had, I did not have a very successful dating life. And um, my love life was a disaster. And, and so I wanted to be so careful to make the right decision. And so I had had prayed for months and had not reached a conclusion. But when I did, it was a step of faith that the Lord was in that. Uh, part of what led up to that is, um, was God had put me in a church in her hometown and uh, to serve as a summer youth pastor. And, and that whole decision process was a step of faith because I had had two opportunities offered to me that summer. And one was to go back to Bellevue to work as an intern for the summer. The other was to go to this small town in Mississippi, about 2,000 people, and be a student pastor, solo student pastor for the summer. I had never done anything like that. I didn't know what I was doing. And through a process of decision-making, God led me to do that. It was a step of faith. And he honored that in so many ways. And one of those ways was with my wife of 34 years. When we got ready to leave school, we didn't have any place to go. We had applied 
to the foreign mission board, as it was called then, to be journeyman missionaries coming out of college. And they declined because we had been married less than a year. And so we applied to the home mission board, the North American mission board, to be US2 missionaries. And they accepted us. And we were going to go in August, but we had nowhere to go. And we were independent. We were married on our own, had, had nothing hardly to our name. All you could fit in a trunk and maybe a, a small U-Haul. That was it. And we had prayed and prayed and prayed that semester of our last semester of our senior year, not having a place to go, wondering what God had in mind. After Christmas, I literally had no engagements, no responsibilities on the calendar. And those, those services that I provided churches as an as interim pastor, even college and all, actually put food on our table, paid our bills. Nobody was calling. And so I remember that there was a women's event at a church nearby and I told Gail to go. I said, you ought to go and enjoy it. She said, we don't have the money. I said, just, just do it. It's only like $5 or something. That's a lot of money. I mean, we used to split the Sonic Burger out of the piggy bank. I mean, that was where we were at that moment in our life. And, and I got down on my knees at that moment, and I just absolutely felt a sense of desperation. Oh, God, if you don't open a door of some way for us to pay our bills. We can't even afford to stay in this apartment. We're not going to be able to finish school. And it was that kind of experience. And when I got up from praying uh, a couple hours later, while she was still at this ladies thing, I got a phone call and it was a church just asking me to come do a Valentine banquet to sing, if you can imagine that. And Gil and I used to sing. And they obviously were easily entertained. <laughs> and after that, a couple of days later, someone else called, and the whole semester then filled up. And as the semester was coming to an end, we didn't have any place to go for the summer. And, uh, and then within about a month of graduation, a pastor called from Greenville, Mississippi, and said, we need a summer youth pastor. I went there, it was one of the neatest experiences of my life that particular summer. We saw kids come to Christ and turn fully to the Lord, and uh, many of them ministry today and still in touch with them today, and some of them are parents, and I think some of them are grandparents. Just a neat work of God, and as that summer came to a close, he had worked so clearly and so powerfully that, that I wondered, were we right to go to California? Were we right to move out there to be church planners? Was that really what God had in mind? Because he so clearly had blessed in this situation. And we were praying about it, and I, I think I've shared the story before. We got a letter from the Home Mission Board telling us we were going to receive as income uh, a certain amount of money. I think it was like $700 a month. And uh, I called up the man in California who was going to become a father in the Lord to me. I didn't know that. And he was a man of faith, and I learned so much from him. I called him up, and I said, I, I, I've been looking through the newspapers at the library. That was an early form of Google. And in the Greenville Public Library, they had copies of city, big city newspapers, and one of them was the LA Times, and I looked through their classifieds and saw an apartment for rent in Hollywood in a three-week-old newspaper for like $400 a month, and I thought we could, maybe we could afford that. It was, 
it didn't seem very far from the church, but in Los Angeles, neighborhoods change quickly. And, and when I told that supervisor that, Bob Tremaine, he just got quiet on the phone and then began to laugh very deeply and quietly. And I didn't appreciate that. He said, no, you can't, you can't live there. And later, I believed him after we moved there. <laughs> I walked and saw the place. And um, he said, there's an apartment across the street from the church. It's a one-bedroom apartment. He said, it, it rents for $735 a month. I said, Pastor, I said, they're only going to give us $700. He said, $700? Is that all? And he, I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, whatever. And he called them up, and they, they gave us an increase to 900 so you can do the math on that. And so we were really wrestling with that, and, and he said, well, you just need to know whether or not God's calling you here. You don't need to worry about the money. And I didn't know Bob well enough to understand how faith works, that that's what really I needed to know was whether or not God was calling us. While we were waiting at that moment, I got a phone call from a friend of ours who had actually entered the same US2 program a couple of years earlier and had gone to Iowa. And it had a very similar experience. He didn't know what we were struggling with. He just called me up to tell me that he was praying for me. And he said, Don, I just want to remind you, whatever God calls you to do, he provides the means to do it. And so we, we reached a conclusion that God was calling us to do it, and it was a step of faith. But in every step of faith, it seemed like the, the risk got bigger and the challenge got bigger, and the things that were at stake grew larger every time. And I remember thinking to, and talking to the Lord at times, Father, does this ever get easier? This school of faith that I was in. I think I shared a few weeks ago, that was why my wife repeatedly during those decision times would look at me and say, why did you pray what you prayed on the night that we married? Because on the night we married, we'd gotten down on our knees and I'd prayed, oh God, make us a people of faith. And boy, he does answer prayer. <laughs> and it was breathtaking. When we left California, it's the same scenario. I felt led to come back. We had no place to go. I just knew God was saying to leave. And we didn't even have the money for a rental truck. We didn't have the resources to, to rent an apartment. I didn't have a job. But I knew God said to go. And uh, two weeks before we were to leave, all of the funding came in for the move. And it was that close. In fact, I even had a safety net. I told Bob, I said, if this doesn't work, can I stay? He said, yeah, you can stay. But we did. We moved. We went to Memphis. And that summer was one of the hot summers and, and uh, had nowhere to go, no job. I looked for work. I interviewed at some of the some neat places in Memphis, had all kinds of great recommendations from people we knew out west that had ties to Memphis. Nobody would give me a job. And my little bit of savings that we had saved for the move just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And a baby was on the way, which there was always a baby on the way. No insurance. Our stuff was stored. No place to go. 
And then I got a phone call. My Bible professor in college years earlier had become a mentor to me, and he knew we were back, and he called me and said, do you remember Dumas Baptist Church? It's outside Ripley, Mississippi. He said, do you remember that? I said, Dr. Travis, I remember that. I used to go there some as a student. He said, well, they need a pastor. He said, would you let me give them your name? I said, Dr. Travis, I don't know. I felt like the Lord was leading us back to a different direction, a different kind of ministry. He said, well, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I said, okay. And I became, ultimately became the pastor of that church, my first pastorate out of the mission field for four years. And I could go on and, and regale you with great detail of how each step of faith never felt easy never felt relaxed, never felt like, I got this now. And there's a reason for that. Now, I want to read for you John chapter 6, the first 13 verses, and then I want to call attention to you just four ways that I see Jesus growing faith through this passage, how he grows faith and why he does it. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. And after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with the disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was near. Then Jesus Lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, and so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. How does Jesus grow faith in you? Number one, he wants you to know him through the scriptures. He wants you to know him through the scriptures. In verses 1 and 2, it says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. Verse 2, it says, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. They had a history with him. They knew something about him. They knew what he was capable of doing. And and God wants you to know him that way. He wants you to know him through the Gospels. He wants you to know him through his word. Anyone who can read can read the Gospels and see something of who Jesus is. He came, it says, 
preaching the kingdom of God, but not only preaching it, he demonstrated what it's like when God is in charge, when God rules through the healings, through the miracles. What does it look like when God's in charge? But with Philip, he's doing something. He's teaching him something. And it goes all the way back to their first encounter. For example, in John 1.43, John chapter 1.43, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. That was his, his calling from Jesus. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, now listen to what he said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What was he appealing to? The scriptures. We have found him. We have found the Messiah. We have found the one who is God. We have found the one who is the anointed one. He's the one who's going to bring in the kingdom of God. We found him, Nathaniel. And all he had at that point was his connection to the Scriptures and what he saw in Jesus that lined up with the Scripture. So Jesus encouraged this. Jesus never discourages anyone to know him through his word, and we must begin there. If I want to know who Jesus really is, I need to track him in the Scriptures. And so that's where we start. My faith is going to grow. I need to know the person who I'm, I'm, I'm trusting. But he goes further than that. And there's another lesson that quickly follows. Not only does he want you to know him through the Scriptures, but secondly, he gives you personal lessons in order to grow your faith. That's what I was telling you about earlier, personal lessons. In verses 3 and 9, it describes how he goes up on the mountain and he's with the disciples, but then he says this to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? In verse 6, if you're wondering, it says it very clearly, but this he said to test him. Now here's this crowd, and they're following him because of all of his miracles, but, but in the midst of the crowd, and the crowd's coming, he lifts up the crowd, his eyes, and he sees this mass of people coming. He knows they're hungry. He sees them on the way. And he says, this is a good opportunity to teach Philip something. And do you know that what he does for Philip at this moment, he does for us, if we will pay attention. That the difficulties you and I encounter in life are not happenstance, coincidence, bad luck, whatever other expression you may have to describe it. But oftentimes the things, the circumstances, the decisions... The challenges that come into your life are there for a purpose. Sometimes many more purposes than you can comprehend because he is infinitely wise. The Bible says he's working in everything for our good to those that love him. And as he's working in our life, we know he's working in other people's lives. But, but, but I want you to set all of that aside. Don't worry for right now, for this moment, what he's doing in somebody else's life. I want you to think about this fact, this truth, that he wants to build faith in your life. And how is he calling you to trust him in this moment? What are you trusting him for at this moment? What is he doing in you or through you that if he stops for one moment, your whole world would collapse and would fall apart? if he doesn't step in and do 
what he has said to you that he will do. Personal lessons. He said this to test him. We know the crowd was there following him because of the miracles, but Jesus wants us to go deeper. He is more than a miracle worker. He wants us to release ourselves fully to him as Lord. And just as we saw this morning with the wagon and the illustration of Caleb who wholly followed the Lord in his life, so he is building faith in your life and my life so that we will wholly follow him. That we will bring every part of our personality, every part of our social life, every part of our our world under the rule of Jesus Christ. Even Joshua is going through that experience as we've studied it in past weeks. When he goes to Jericho, it was more than just marching around the walls, wasn't it? It was more than that. There's this incredible moment that we saw where he encounters the captain of the Lord's armies. And he has this exchange with this supernatural being that we believe is probably the Lord Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate appearance. And suddenly, Joshua realizes who he's talking to, and he is face down. And so whatever else was going on at Jericho, God was doing something with Joshua and saying, yes, I told you no one would stand before you. Yes, I told you everywhere you set your foot. I have already given to you, but you also need to understand that I am the one who's doing that. I am the one who's bringing you in. I am the one who's giving you this land. And he falls before him. The Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven six, but without faith it is impossible to please him. The flip side of that is that faith pleases him. And when I trust him, I'm bringing delight to him. I'm, I'm pleasing him with my life. Just like Rahab, trusting that this Yahweh who brought an entire nation through a Red Sea and destroys the mightiest military force on the planet, she puts her trust in that God. She risks everything. She risks her life. She risks her family. Everything. And it pleased God, and Rahab survived when no one else survived in the city of Jericho. The lessons that God brings to you and me come in all shapes and sizes. Some may feel relatively small. Others may feel life-threatening. But he does bring the lessons. They're all designed to put you and I in a place that requires faith in order to move forward. Much as the entire nation faced at Kadesh Barnea, 45 years before Caleb, where they had the opportunity to simply trust God and go forward into the promised land. But they chose not to, and they stepped back. And the book of Hebrews is all about this dramatic moment in their lives where the people of God who had been saved, they had been delivered, they would always be the people of God, but they never received all that God had in mind for them because they would not trust Him. He took care of them for 40 years, their entire lives. He fed them with manna from heaven. Their shoes didn't wear out. God took care of the people of God. But the people of God missed out on the plan of God because they would not trust Him. And it was the great test of their life, and it was their final opportunity to go forward in their walk with God. I don't think you tonight sitting here need to worry about whether or not I have failed miserably in my life like the Israelites did at Kadesh Barnea. I think what's more significant, more important, is what is God calling you to trust Him to do next? What is it that is the next thing that God is calling you to do that requires faith if it's going to happen and requires you to move forward? 
All the tests are designed to put you and I in a place that changes me the longer my faith endures. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the apostle writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How many of you all are experiencing various trials? You have every opportunity now to be joyful. Why? Because you are knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. That that thing that is a nagging thing, your car broke down again, you got another problem, another bill, another disaster, another calamity, another challenge, and, and all of this is coming to you at once. And you can gripe and complain and grumble, or you can say, oh God, no matter what comes, I trust you. I trust you. So bring it. The testing of your faith produces endurance. It pleases the Lord when you trust him in the midst of difficulty. So Philip is being tested. One of the men in our Thursday morning Bible study came up and quoted to me. Uh, Adrian Rogers saying, and it's really not original to Adrian, but, but a lot of people remember him saying it. He said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Philip's being tested. So in verse 5, he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Notice the question, where shall we buy bread in order that these may eat? And Philip was stunned. Jesus was asking where to get the food to feed thousands of people. And what's interesting is immediately his mind did not go to the question Jesus asked, which was where to buy the food. His, quest, his, his thoughts went to how are we going to afford it? 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. He must have said it louder than he normally speaks because Andrew overheard him, and he chimes in. And so whatever test you're going through, know that it does affect the people around you and will often engage them in the same questions that you have and can affect them for good as well as negatively. So Andrew chimes in and says, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves now, you got to understand that barley loaves was the, the stuff that poor people ate. This was not the fine wheat. This was, this was the poor man's bread. He has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So Andrew's not thinking about how much it costs. He's saying, well, here's what we got. It's grossly inadequate, Jesus. What is this for so many? It's inadequate, but here's what we have. They're being tested. And so it's not just something that happens for pastors, something that happens for people who are called and to be missionaries. Every man and woman, every boy and girl, every young person, he is putting you, when you signed up, when you trusted Jesus, he has put you into a school of faith. And what you and I need to do is be sensitive to when those lessons come. And when Jesus is testing us. What is he doing? Here's the third lesson I see here. He's teaching you to look to him. He's teaching you to look to him. Now that's difficult for you and me because we don't see him physically. And, and yet that is the way we're called to live. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And our tendency is to look at what I can feel and touch and see and measure 
to look at my bank account, to look at my resources, to look at my health, to look at what, what is available in the natural realm, and to focus my attention there. And that's why we get so panicked, so distressed, so fearful, and so anxious. But there's a whole other world that he is calling you to look at, and it's the world that you cannot see, where usually the great battles are being fought over the world that you do see. John, writing years later, in this passage, John chapter 6, describes Jesus' question as a test. And uh, what was it a test of? To see who could whip out their iPhone and locate the nearest market? Find a market app? To see who could most quickly calculate the cost? Pull out their calculators and everybody start figuring it up? I got the answer! To see who could conduct a speedy inventory of personal resources and accounts? That's how they answered. Feel, don't feel so bad about your tendencies. Because we all are like that. Andrew and Philip. Is that the test? Not even close. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing. He has been both proclaiming the ruling power of God and demonstrating it. He is sowing absolute truth into their minds. And now presented with an impossible situation, Philip must apply what he has been taught. It's no longer a Bible study on Sunday. It is a moment that defines him, a moment when he has to act and trust the Lord. The test exposed Philip's thought life and what was going on in his head. We say that we're trusting him, but our thoughts tell the real story. Under pressure and experiencing anxiety, Philip's mind didn't run to the Father, who's a king with unlimited resources and power. His mind went to what he had and what he possessed. He stopped at the walls, erected by a worldview that believes more in what is seen than what is unseen. He was stymied, and he was stuck. The Old Testament is full of examples who failed to trust God when confronted with overwhelming forces beyond their control. And they would do what everybody else did in that situation. They would run to a neighboring king and try to strike a treaty with them. They would make unholy alliances with unholy people in order to achieve their ends. And we have to be so careful with that in our culture, in our society, even in our politics. Willing to do whatever it takes as long as we achieve the desired result. Over and over again, God allowed his people to discover the hard way that he is our rock. He is our hiding place. He is our deliverer. He is the one who can be trusted. And they were being tested. So in verse 10, Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, a number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise to the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus lived his life exclusively with reference to the unseen. He did not walk by sight. He walked by faith. He lived his life as a man, entirely dependent on the Father for everything. 
everything. Never did he hesitate to trust the Father. At the greatest test of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Completely discarded his wants, his desires, not my will. Just completely set it aside and said, there's only one will that matters, and I'm trusting you, and I'm depending on you. He's intensely aware of the needs. There's 5,000 guys sitting there and untold numbers of women and children. He can see, he's no dummy, that his immediate provisions are inadequate, that the resources he possesses are inadequate. But he doesn't panic. The distinct difference in the mind of Christ is this. He seeks first the kingdom or the ruling power of God. That's where his mind goes first. Unlike Philip, who needed to learn this, So when that crunch time comes, where does your mind go? And he's teaching us to look to him. Don't panic. Catch your breath. Take a deep breath. And go to him and say, Lord, here it is. Just spread it out. Father, I refuse to own this problem. I'm going to give you this problem. And I'm going to set it before you. Oh, God, I'm looking to you for an answer. And I may not know the whole answer, but he may show you the next step. Just the next step. And that's really all you need. The fourth lesson. He grows your faith with bigger lessons. He grows your faith with bigger lessons. He wants to do so much in you and through you, more than you've ever dreamed, more than you've ever imagined. He wants to use you in ways that that you would look at other people maybe years ago and you'd say, man, what a great man of faith, what a great woman of faith, but God wants to use you in that way to accomplish great things, to do things that only can happen when God is working in a powerful and a mighty way. I really struggle with whether or not to, to mention this, but just you can jot this just down in your margin of your notes or however you're taking notes. But in Luke 18, Jesus teaches about prayer. In the very first verse, he says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the whole nature of praying is that you're trusting the Lord, typically for something that you need him to do or be involved in, and you're trusting him. He says, don't lose heart. And then he tells this story. There was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow is worrying the death of me, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? The story is not about God having to be twisted and begged in order to get him to do something. It's not a focus on God as a judge. It started with that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. The comparison is with you and this lady who kept coming and who kept coming and kept coming, looking to the only one who could answer her need, who could answer her problem. And what God is going to do is he grows your faith in the school of faith is puts you in positions where you are going to trust him. And and one of the great ways that you trust him is through your prayer life. 
And you're coming to Him again and again with this need that just won't go away. And sometimes you have to pray for a year, sometimes 10 years, sometimes 20 years. But you don't lose heart, and you keep coming to Him. You keep coming to Him. And what's He doing? He's growing you. He's stretching you. And He's going to do the greater things, the mighty things, the things that were unspeakable that you never imagined He could ever do. At the end of this passage, Jesus says, I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? Do you hear the heart of Jesus? What He's looking for at Wind Baptist Church? What He's looking for is His Spirit goes up and down every pew, the balcony, and here on the floor. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Will He find that man who will trust him no matter what? Will he find that woman who will keep praying, keep coming, and keep bringing that need before the Lord over and over again? I believe that we're in for darker days than perhaps we've ever known in human history. I don't say that with joy, but I do believe that you and I can have great joy even in the midst of great sorrow because we serve a great and mighty God who has promised that he would deliver his people. And he's looking for you and I when the crunch comes to trust him. These things that you're having to trust him for now, as great as they are, there are greater lessons coming. Is God some kind of sadist? Does he take pleasure in your misery? Mm -mm. He wants you to know that the place of greatest joy and freedom and liberty is in the palm of his hand when you trust yourself into his care. How do we apply this? Let me just give you two or three things and then we're going to close. Number one, refuse to evaluate your problems by sight alone. When you have a problem, it's perfectly all right to review the scriptures. You should. What does God say about my problem? Come to him in prayer. Seek counsel from those who walk with the Lord and allow yourself to, to give that problem to him, to come and bring that problem to him and say, Lord, what is the truth about my problem? But do not let your problem drive you into a panic. And that's easier to say than to do. But you lay hold of that problem, you come and you bring it to the Lord. Secondly, take every problem to the Father to learn the truth about your problem or need. And thirdly, Thank him for being everything that you need. Jesus took what was inadequate and he offered it to the Lord and he said, thank you, Father. And it became adequate. Literally became adequate. Super abundantly it became adequate. And so I don't know how he's going to do that in your circumstance or your situation that you're facing. But I do know that when you and I give thanks to a God that I cannot see with my eyes, it is an expression of great faith. That God, even I don't, if I don't have a job, even if I don't have my health, even if I don't have all the things that I really would love to have, oh God, thank you for who you are and thank you that you love me. And I'm trusting you with my life, and I'm trusting you with my situation. 
as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, it says in Colossians. We receive him by faith, but the Christian life is not just simply now sitting and waiting for heaven. Now that I've received him by faith, he has called me to walk with him by faith. And I wonder if his Holy Spirit has appealed to your heart through his word tonight and said, come walk with me, son. The Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. He's saying, come walk with me, daughter. I want you to walk with me. You're not alone. You never were alone. And you have trusted me to take you to heaven, but will you trust me tonight? Will you trust me tomorrow? Will you trust me this week? And will you walk with me? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But when you're trusting him, you're bringing him delight and great pleasure. The life of faith begins by trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that the greatest problem you have is not somebody else, but it's your own sin problem. And the things that you have done to do life without God have created a a record of sin that has to be addressed, has to be punished. God is just, God is holy, God is pure, God does not allow sin in his presence. But he loved you so much that he sent his sinless and precious son to be your savior. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took all of your sins onto himself and he died for you. The Bible says that if you'll put your trust in Jesus, that he rose from the dead, that God defeated death and the punishment of sin through Jesus Christ. If you'll put your trust in Jesus, abandon yourself to him, give him your life, that he'll save you. Your sins will be forgiven. And this new life, the life that he always had in mind for you, this abundant life, will now be yours. And so if you've never trusted Christ tonight, I invite you to come. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And I'm going to invite you in front of God and everybody to come and put your trust in Jesus. The pastors will be standing here, I'll be standing here, and we'll be glad to counsel with you. If you've still got questions, we'll answer those questions with God's word. You can read it for yourself. But don't hesitate. Would you come? Maybe you're carrying a burden, and it's too great to bear alone. I want to invite you tonight to come and pray with our pastors or grab someone there in the pew next to you and say, hey, I need you to pray for me. And let's lighten those loads tonight. Let's lighten those burdens, okay? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is here among us. And Lord, we want to commit these moments to you. It's a God who hears us, a God who is there, a God who lives. We welcome you in this place, Lord, and for that dear one who is struggling in faith, wanting to learn, wanting to grow in their faith, I pray you would answer their cry tonight. For the one that's about to take a step of faith, and they don't know what the future holds, but they are trusting you, I pray you would encourage them tonight. Show them your greatness. Show them your might, show them your glory so that they will know that a step of faith is not as great a risk as they thought, but it is a step into the most solid and safe place in the universe, into your care. Fathers, we respond to you in these moments. My hearts be filled with joy, filled with faith. Guide us now, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name.